Well, good morning, Dina Community Church. I'm glad to be with you electronically until we can meet again physically, hopefully week after next. And appreciates everyone's patience and prayers while we navigate these uncertain times and try to make the best decisions we can. I was out on a walk last week and bumped into a gentleman who works for Federal Express and said, man, I bet your business is booming. And he said, oh man, if I only knew in March what I knew now, I could have tripled my money. And we probably all have had times when we wish that we could have known the future. And whether it was with a stock market or a sporting event or decisions we were making about our career or relationships, it'd be nice to know the future, to give us encouragement in the present and to help us navigate uncertain times between now and then, and then give us hope. And there's plenty of people out there who would be happy to read your palm, consult the stars, flip a tarot card, and give you their best guess and their spookiest voice. But what if we actually had someone that did know the future because God, who knows the future, had revealed it to him and had proven time and again in ways that we can verify that God had indeed spoken through him so that we would have assurance of the things yet to be fulfilled. And that's what we have in the prophetic books of the Bible, especially and what we're going to look at today in Daniel chapter two, a man that God revealed the future to and has now looking backwards, confirmed that revelation on several occasions, centuries in advance, that gives us hope and assurance of the things yet to be fulfilled to give us comfort and courage in dark days. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter two, uh, you'll remember that Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six give us court narratives of Daniel and his friends at the court of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius. And then the last seven chapters are apocalyptic visions, revelations given to Daniel about the distant future. Last week, Greg Travis walked us through how do we live as God's people in an age that's hostile to God and God's people. And we were encouraged by the example of Daniel, who set his heart not to be defiled by the king's food. And the first thing that we need to do in living in a godless culture is to commit ourselves to not being corrupted by that culture. And that we determine in advance that we will obey God, even if the world doesn't, and even if they don't approve, because we know that God's ways are best. And as we obey God, that's going to be proven out as it was with Daniel and his friends. And so it's with great encouragement and love that we tell other people to live their life God's way because God's ways are always best. And Christians are intended to be the best in every field that we're in. The Christians should be the best employers and employees and students and teachers and citizens and politicians and rulers because we should be living a life that is an example to the world so that everybody says, I want y'all's marriage and I want your family and I want a community that loving. And I would love to have a life that hopeful, even in a discouraging day. And that's what the gospel's intended to do, is that we live out God's ways in a way that reveal God to people, and they come to him through Christ. And so at the end of Daniel chapter one, Nebuchadnezzar said, he brought the uh, people in training before the king. And as for the matter of wisdom and understanding, he found Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers in all his realm. That even at a young age and inexperienced, God's servants were better than the king's servants. 
And now we're going to see that proven out in Daniel chapter 2, where we're going to get four main sections, King Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream, Daniel's prayerful revelation, Daniel's prophetic interpretation of that dream that was revealed, and then Daniel's providential promotion by Nebuchadnezzar in appreciation of Daniel and his God. And so we look at verses 1 through 3. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, so this is Nebuchadnezzar II, who was the general who had taken Daniel and his friends captive when he had besieged Jerusalem, and then returning to Babylon and uh, was made king himself in September of 605. And we are now in his second year, and he is disturbed by troubling dreams. And awoken from that, the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So the dream of kings was considered especially significant because people believed that that was one of the ways that the gods spoke to their servants. And of course, as the king, as the head of a realm and of an empire, the things being revealed to him had implications for all of those over whom he ruled. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, not a message dream, where words were given, but a symbolic dream that needs interpretation. So he calls those who specialized in spells and talking to spirits and looking at the stars to gain their wisdom into the meaning of his dream. And they came and stood before him. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. There was something deeply disturbing about this particular dream. There was something unique about this uh, image that he had had in his mind while he slept that made him in the middle of the night call the people for an immediate interpretation. And they come and they gather and they say, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. Now the reference to Aramaic cues us that this is the transition from Hebrew, which is what chapter one was written in through two, three, and now beginning in 2.4 through the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic until it returns back to Hebrew. And so they come and basically say, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it means. But the king on this occasion wasn't willing to accept these terms. So he says, the king replied to the Chaldeans, those who were specialists in Babylonian religion, especially astrology. The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me both the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me, here's the third repetition, the dream and its interpretation. So the king is suspicious of their abilities and demands that they prove their claim to interpret dreams by declaring to him not merely the interpretation, but the dream itself. And so three times he indicates, tell me both the dream and the interpretation. And if you do, I'll give you a rewards, plural, and I'll also then give you a gift and I'll give you honor. But if you don't, then I will tear you limb from limb, and he meant that quite literally, and then demolish your homes and reduce your houses to rubble. So this indicates, one, the character of Nebuchadnezzar the king, and one who could be ruthless and was not one to be trifled with. 
It gives us some insight into Chaldean culture and what it would have been like for the Hebrew people to have been brought captive into such a harsh and a cruel and a vicious environment. And it also indicates the urgency that the king felt that again, this wasn't mere curiosity. He had to know this dream and he was willing to reward generously or to punish fearfully if they couldn't reveal both the dream as well as its interpretation. And so they repeat their offer. Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. They act as though they haven't heard. And the king replied, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time. You're stalling. But you've seen that the command from me is firm. That if you do not make known to me the dream, then there is only one decree for you, namely to be dismembered and your house demolished. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. So the king gives his reason for his apparently unreasonable request. If you can reveal to me my dream, then that will verify that I can trust you in its interpretation. If all you're going to give me is interpretation, then I have no reason to give confidence in your abilities to speak the truth to me. And so the counselors reply, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. And so we have no account in scripture or anywhere of not only a dream being interpreted, but the dream being revealed as well. So there's many parallels in this account with Joseph being brought before Pharaoh. And you remember that Joseph was in prison after being falsely accused. And Pharaoh had a dream of the fat cows and the fat ears of corn and then the gaunt cows and the stricken ears of corn. And no one knew how to interpret it, but Joseph did. But Joseph gave the interpretation, but he didn't reveal the dream. God often speaks in dreams and scriptures, but we don't have ever an account of one revealing the dream. This is an unprecedented request, which is why no king has ever made this request. Because they go on to say it's difficult, meaning it's impossible. And in fact, no mortal can do this. This is a matter only for the gods. And that's actually all quite true, as Daniel's going to confirm. And so we see here emphasized both the limitations of earthly power. And so Nebuchadnezzar could be the most powerful man on the planet, he could be the ruler over the greatest empire of the age. He could have life and death in his hands. He could build wonders of the world, like in the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. But yet a dream can disrupt and disturb his peace and leave him unsettled and leave him helpless to know his future. So his limitations are unveiled, as well as the illusion of putting your hope in false religions or in pagan attempts to know the future. So we see the limitations of earthly power and also the vacuity, the emptiness, the vanity of false religions, of those who would claim to know this. And now threatened with death, they admit, we can't do this. Only a God can do this. And Nebuchadnezzar follows through on his threat. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy not just the men before him, but all the wise men of Babylon. I want to remove this entire cast of people who claim to be experts, but can't reveal to me this pressing matter of my disturbing dream. And so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. 
So now we shift to a pivot in the text where the word has been, the decree has been made known to Daniel and his friend. And Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now it's interesting that the king reacted with indignation and fury, and the wise men reacted with protest and conflict, contention. Daniel doesn't respond with panic or despair, but rather with discernment and discretion because he trusts in his God to be able to deliver him. And so he very respectfully asks, like he did with the head of the trainees in chapter one, why is the king's decree so urgent? And Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. And Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. So Daniel's a beautiful example of God's servants being able to respond to pressure with grace because there's God's grace in the midst of their pressure. And he doesn't panic and he doesn't flee and he doesn't fight, but he goes with discretion and discernment to the person who can actually do something about it. And he's given not merely an answer, but an audience. And now again, Arioch is impressed by Daniel somehow in his demeanor to bring him before the furious king who has ordered the execution of all the people like Daniel. And now Daniel, as someone in his late teens, a Hebrew, a captive, inexperienced, new in his field, is brought before the king and begs for time because God is able to reveal an answer. And there's something in Daniel's presence. There's some poise. There's some confidence there that makes him relinquish and give him time. And so Daniel gathers his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And they gather together to request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, that they would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel doesn't go it alone. He immediately goes to his brothers in the faith. And now together they go to their God. And that's actually fairly remarkable because consider their situation. They had been taken yeah. captive. Their city had been sacked. They had been separated from their family. They had been kidnapped, brought into a strange land. It looked as though God had abandoned them. It looked like God, maybe he wasn't going to keep his words and his promises to their forefathers. But yet in a dire, desperate situation, they go to him and they pray to him, not presumptuously, not naming it and claiming it. And they go to him, not arrogantly, not defiantly, like, God, you owe us, God, you promised. But they go seeking mercy and compassion. God, you are a gracious God. Would you be compassionate to your servants and allow us to survive this threat? And God, being gracious, answers. And when the prayer is answered, praise is given. And Daniel breaks into this beautiful doxology, this word of praise to God, when the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And this will be a term used for God throughout this passage five times, God of heaven four times, God in heaven once, emphasizing his transcendence over all the earth, over all emperors and kings, over all matters and mysteries. And David praises him for two main attributes. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. 
wisdom to reveal mysteries and knowledge because God is all-knowing. He's omniscient, and he knows the past and the present and the future and all possibilities, and he's able to reveal that accurately to his servants. And power, not simply to reveal, but to orchestrate. Because look at verse 21. It is God who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. If Babylon had defeated Jerusalem, it wasn't because Marduk was more powerful than Yahweh, but because God was disciplining his people who had disobeyed the covenant, and therefore he had given them into the hands of his enemies. And God was able to raise up Jerusalem in their day. He was able to give them victory over their enemies in the conquest. He was able to preserve them during the times of the kings. And then he was able to raise up pagan powers because God is not limited to being the God of Israel or in Palestine, but he is the God of all nations and all places. And he raises up and he puts down. And so God has the wisdom to know and reveal the future because God has the power to determine and affect the future that he desires in his decree. And it's he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. So Daniel praises God for his natural abilities, his omnipotence, his omniscience, as well as his kind character to reveal those things and to use that power for the good of his people. And then he praises God. He moves from talking about God to talking to God directly. To you, O God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenantal God who had called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, I give thanks for answering my prayers and for all you do. And I give you praise for who you are and all your capacities. For you have given me wisdom and power. And even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel is in captivity. Daniel has a death threat hanging over him. And yet his view of God's character is not diminished. And his God, his view of God's capacity hasn't declined. And Daniel reminds himself of who his God is. And that gives him hope and confidence and courage in a dark day. Because discouraging times reveal just how much we trust God and how much we actually do believe that he is who he claims to be and that we are actually trusting him with our present and our future. Because the reality is, all of us have a prosperity gospel. All of us desire and feel like we have a right to demand a certain measure of health and security and stability and material provision and peace. And when we don't get that, we feel like God has somehow cheated us or we begin to doubt our faith as though it's maybe an illusion and real. And what Daniel and David and Job and Habakkuk and Jesus and Paul and others remind us is, God is God, and he is immutable, and he is unchanging. And if my circumstances are different than what I desire them to be, that doesn't change God one bit. And it doesn't deny who he is or what he's promised. It doesn't diminish his character. It just indicates that God in his sovereign will has allowed me in the circumstances that I'm in. And so I trust him, and I pray to him, and I praise him, and I thank him. And I know that he will do the right and the good thing which in this instance was showing mercy to Daniel and his friends 
by revealing to him the matter of the king's dream. So in verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, the head of the king's bodyguard, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Notice how Daniel is emboldened now, that having gone to God in prayer, having had God's kind answer, look at the way his young man speaks to the head of the king's bodyguard who's been ordered to kill him. Do not destroy. Take me to the king. I will declare. And the boldness and the confidence and the courage that David's prayer has given to him. And Arioch hurriedly obeys and brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. And the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was the name that Nebuchadnezzar had given to Daniel. And it's ironic because Belteshazzar is Aramaic for may Bel or Marduk protect his life. And Bel or Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians, couldn't protect the life of the magicians, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, or the wise men because he couldn't predict the future. He couldn't reveal the king's dream because he was an illusion, a figment of their imaginations. But Yahweh, Daniel, the god of Daniel, was able to protect and to preserve and to do all those things. And so he gives the same twofold demand Are you able to make known to me both the dream? which I have seen, and its interpretation. And this would have been a wonderful opportunity for Daniel to promote himself. Uh, notice how Arioch did just this. Daniel had, had gone to Arioch saying, I think I can resolve this matter. And then Arioch goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, I have found a person, as though he had done something. But Daniel refuses to promote himself he will only glorify God and give him all the credit and the glory for what is about to be revealed. And so Daniel says, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream, and the visions in your mind while on your bed. The magicians were right in their protest. No mortal man could do this. But Daniel says, there is a God. He does exist. And he can and he does reveal. And in this instance, he has chosen to reveal to the king the matter of the latter days that he gave to him in a dream. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. He gives him what was rolling through his mind before the dream began. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's heart beginning to pick up a little bit of leaning forward in the throne as he begins to reveal generally what he's going to give specific details on. He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place in the future. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. In other words, he again makes sure that Nebuchadnezzar is under no illusion that there's anything in Daniel that's worthwhile. There's no ability of his own. There's no merit of his own that makes him worthy of special favor, but God is speaking through him. And so now he reveals the dream. 
you, O king, were looking. And behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. So what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a singular object, a statue, and it was awesome in both its size and its splendor, uh, likely the light of the sun reflecting off what we're about to be described as its metallic composition. And it was singular. Uh, it was comprehensive. There was nothing else that was there. And it was human in appearance, as we're going to see. So now he describes how it was made up. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So the statue is not of a piece. It's made up in different levels of composition. And the head is golden. And the chest and the arms are silver. And the waist and the torso are bronze. The legs are iron. And the feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And we see several progressions or digressions here. There is a going from top to bottom. And along with that, there's a moving from more valuable to less valuable, from gold that is said to be pure to clay that is said to be mixed. There is a moving from softer, the pliable gold to harder, the fixed firm iron. And then we move again from this purity to this blending, this mixture. And now having revealed the dream, Daniel goes on to interpret it. I'm sorry, something happens to the statue in verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So a stone is something that is initially small and seemingly insignificant. And unlike the statue that would have been crafted by human hands, this is cut away without any human effort. Uh, it's something done divinely. We're not told who threw it. But it strikes the statue and unlike David throwing the stone at Goliath's head, it hits it at the feet. And in an instant, all the statue crumbles, and crashes, and then dissolves and blows away in the wind. Because when the stone strikes the statue, the true value and worth of the statue is revealed. It's like chaff. It's worthless. And there's not even enough remnants to put in the Natural Science Museum. But the stone grows and expands until it covers the whole earth. And this divine object made without human hands that destroys this mightiest of man-made objects now destroys it and displaces it. And it becomes the glorious enduring reality for all the earth. So this is the dream of the statue and the stone. And now Daniel moves on to interpret it. This was the dream. And now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, the king more powerful than every other king. But notice to who the king owes his kingdom. 
Three times he's going to emphasize to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory, which is a pretty audacious thing for a slave to say to the one that took him captive. But you are a mighty king, mightier than all the other kings at this time. But God is the one that gave you your kingdom and your power and your strength and your glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field or the bird of the sky, God is the one who gave them into your hand. God has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold, but only because God made you golden and only because God has set you as the head. And so the first interpretation is given to Nebuchadnezzar in his role as representing the Babylonian empire, as we're going to see. And everyone agrees that the golden head is Babylon because that's exactly what the text says. But once we move from the neck and below, things become a little bit more controversial. And uh, for those who deny that there is a God or deny that he has inspired the Bible as his word, they also deny that there can be such a thing as predictive prophecy. And so they late date Daniel to around 165 rather than around 605, which is when he actually lived. And then they rule out the possibility of any interpretation living beyond Daniel because no human can know the future, at least if there's no God to reveal it to him. But we're not going to worry about those who reject the existence of God or scripture, but believing in God, knowing that he knows and shapes the future, knowing that he's revealed it to some extent in his inerrant word, I'm just simply going to explain what the traditional evangelical biblical interpretation of these kingdoms are. And so we begin to move from the heck, from the head down below. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And this is going to be the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the empire that today would be Iran, Persia. And we're actually going to see in the book of Daniel, this transition of kingdoms take place. Because in book five, or in chapter five, we're going to see the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians. And then we're going to see Darius the Mede, and then we're going to see reference to Cyrus the Persian, so the first transition takes place in the book of Daniel itself. But the third kingdom of bronze will rule over all the earth. This is a reference to Greece and Alexander the Great. And so Philip of Macedon built up an army and conquered Macedonia. His son, Alexander, received his dad's army and went on to conquer all of the realm from Egypt to India in a very short span. And this will be the bronze empire. And then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so that like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. This is a reference to the Roman Empire. Rome, uh, the city of Rome was founded in 753 BC, so a century and a half before Daniel lived. But it was an insignificant city for a long time until the Republic rose, and then in 146, the Romans beat the Carthaginians in battle and then became the dominant power in the Mediterranean world. And then we see the rise of the Caesars with Julius Caesar and Augustus. And this is going to be the Roman Empire that's going to reign in the West until 476 AD and until 1453 in the East. So this is the legs of iron crushing and separating the prior kingdoms and ruling in two dimensions 
for over a millennia half, at least in the Eastern Constantinople, Constant, I never can say that word, the Byzantine Empire <laughs> that fell to the Turks in 1453. Daniel then moves on to the feet and the toes. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, uh, usually taken to mean intermarriage or sometimes mean the assimilation of another culture, but not entirely because they're not entirely compatible, which is why they're separate. But they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. This final kingdom represented by the feet uh, has had a lot of speculation about it. Some would say that it's related to Rome in some sense because it has an iron element. So some see perhaps the center of this last kingdom being in Rome. Uh, some see significance of the 10 toes of being an alliance of 10 kings or 10 nations that are there simultaneously. Uh, we're not going to worry about eschatological speculations about ideas of the end times because more important than what the toes and the feet represent are the stone in the kingdom that smashes them and replaces it. So here we have a representation of what the statue might have been as well as what the different components would have represented as far as this series of successive Gentile kingdoms that ruled over Israel until we come to the end times and God's kingdom replaces the kingdoms of men. Then in verse 44, it says, in the days of those kings, probably referring to the 10 kings represented by the 10 toes, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So Daniel tells us five things about this coming kingdom, this final kingdom. Its founder is God himself. The God of heaven will set up this kingdom and no longer just simply raise up various kingdoms of men. We see its stability. It will never be destroyed. There's never going to be a successive power that conquers it. Its finality. It will not be left for another people. There won't be another kingdom after this kingdom. It's supremacy. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. And again, all of these different kingdoms represented by the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, they're all part of one statue. They're all part of this idea of the kingdoms of men that God gives temporary authority over his people until he establishes his own kingdom. But when his king comes, they're all going to be destroyed and displaced forever because the kingdom's duration is it will endure forever. And how is this kingdom going to be established and conquer and endure? Well, through this stone. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So we see five things about the stone. Its divine origin, 
that it came without human hands. God made it. We see its Jewish heritage. Uh, the mountain is referring to Mount Zion, the mountains on which Jerusalem was established, where God placed his temple, as we're going to see in a little bit. The target was the feet, not the head or the chest, but the final kingdom when it came. Its timing was going to be at the end of all earthly kingdoms, that there will come a time when the kingdoms of this world give way to the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And then it's going to be the messianic mountain, because the prophets indicate that this mountain of God where he puts his name and he puts his temple and then a Messiah returns to is going to be the final place where God rules when heaven comes to earth someday. And so we see, for example, in Micah 4.1, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountain. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples, all the Gentile nations will stream to it. Isaiah chapter 2 unpacks this a little bit further for us. Now it will come about in the last day, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. There will at last be peace on earth because God will at last reign on earth and he will judge the nations and separate the righteous from the wicked and the people, the redeemed, will flow to him and live according to his righteous rule. And finally, we will experience the thriving and the flourishing that God intended for us. And he's going to reestablish someday. When the Messiah comes, there will finally come with him shalom, fullness and meaning and happiness forever and ever. That's what we're awaiting. So the statue represents the kingdoms of man, that God in his sovereign authority allows to fall in different successions until there will come a final kingdom that will be destroyed by the Messiah when he returns, like we saw in Psalm 2, and then God will establish his own kingdom over all the earth that will be ever-enduring, peaceful, and glorious, and wondrous forever and ever. And the dream comes to the end, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar, hearing this, fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. Now again, this is the conquering king and the emperor over the mightiest empire in the world at this time. Falling down before this captive Hebrew youth, we see something similar actually happen uh, according to the Jewish historian Josephus when Alexander the Great went to the high priest in Jerusalem. And he says, he fell down before him. And when his general Parmenio questioned him on this action, Alexander said, I do not worship the high priest, but the God with whose high priesthood he has been honored. And so Nebuchadnezzar is honoring not Daniel, but Daniel's God, as is made clear in the words. Surely your God is a God of gods, a God above all the gods of the Chaldeans and others. And your God is a Lord of kings 
myself included, and a revealer of mysteries that he's just been given. Because you, Daniel, and you alone have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, follows through in his promise. He had said that you would receive from me gifts, but he gives many great gifts. He said that they would get a reward, but he gives him the rule, in effect, kind of like Joseph, reigning at the right hand of the king, having authority over the kingdom. And he had said that he would give the one that could interpret the dream great honor. And he gives Daniel the greatest honor of being the chief prefect, the head of all the wise men, all the advising class in Babylon. And then Daniel makes his, his first request, his first wise act, the appointing of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel did what no one had ever done. He revealed the king's dream. And we know, living millennia past Daniel, that his predictions came true. And that Daniel was writing around 605. Alexander the Great died in 323. So 300 years after Daniel, what Daniel prophesied came and take place. Uh, it would be like someone writing around 1700, predicting what was happening in 2020. And then even more remarkable, looking forward to the Roman Empire, which again, wasn't even on the political map at the time of Daniel, but did reign and rule just as Daniel prophesied and predicted. And that was 700 years after Daniel. And so Daniel was able, going back to the time of Calvin or Elizabeth or Shakespeare, looking forward into the 21st century about what was happening in Russia and China before anyone in that time even thought about Russia and China. And so that gives us great hope and confidence that the things yet to take place will occur just as God revealed through Daniel. So what are some of the applications of this ancient text for those of us living today? First of all, we should think less of man and mankind's kingdoms. Uh, when you look at the statue with the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian empire, Alexander the Great, Rome, all of them were great in their day. And all of them are gone. There's only remnants and relics and rubble and ruins when you go to visit the sites or you see pieces and fragments of them in natural science museums. And all the other great empires of the past, Portugal or Spain or Britain, they're gone. They're remnants. And the great kingdoms of today and the future will be likewise. Uh, Percy Bryce Shelley wrote a poem called Ozymandias about this theme. He says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, and now we get the account of the traveler, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
Every age has its Ozymandias, who appears to be the greatest and the most powerful. And he fades, and he falls, and he dies. And so we are not to ultimately fear or put our hopes in the kingdoms of this world. We're not to aspire to or give our ultimate allegiance to the kingdoms of this world, because they're all going to fade someday. Which means we should also think much more of God and his kingdom, that all wisdom and all power belong to him, that he is the eternal and everlasting one. He is all-knowing and all-powerful, that he rules sovereignly through history until at the end of history he comes and rules sovereignly on earth himself. And that's the kingdom that we should be living for. Because there is going to come a time when his kingdom will come, when his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because to him is all the glory and all the power and all the praise forever and ever. So that's where our ultimate fear lies, our ultimate hope lies, our ultimate allegiance lies. And that's the kingdom that we're laboring to expand and extend. Thirdly, we should respond to dangers with discretion and discernment not with anger and indignation, not with protests and complaints, not with panic and despair, but also with fellowship and faith, that we are part of a community to be able to encourage and support one another and to be able to trust in God, in his compassionate promises, in his faith to his covenant, even when our situation is dark and even when it appears that there's no hope to be found. And then with prayer-emboldened faith, we act. We're faithful. And we continue to do the right thing, even when it's uh, seemingly impossible to do. Uh, I just finished reading this book, uh, this week, a new book called Live Not by Lies by an author named Rod Dreher. And the book's title comes from the last published work of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he encourages people to live not by lies that we always find ourselves exposed to the threat of a tyranny that makes us try to say certain things and defer and to live a lie. And that God's people are to live in integrity according to the truth. And in his book, he gives many accounts of Christians who refused to bend the knee in a Soviet age. And one particularly powerful episode of a group of priests from the Orthodox Church that were sledded up and forced to drag a dredge into the woods and there they were lined up uh, back to back. And a man came to the first and put a gun to his forehead and said, does God exist? And he said, yes. And he shot him. And then he went to the one behind him. And the same question and the same response. And the guard who later told the story witnessed every single priest refusing to tell a lie to save his life. And a group of martyrs died faithful because they would not live a lie and they would deny God's truth and that God did exist even if he chose in that moment to allow them to glorify him in their death rather than glorify himself in their preservation and delivery. But we don't live by lies. We are going to be faithful and it's going to take prayer and it's going to take help from one another. Fourthly, we should identify ourselves with the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man, and align ourselves with God's Messiah. We know now who that stone represented, Jesus Christ, that this was the anointed king that God revealed to David in Psalm 2, that he gave authority over all the nations. And we have the opportunity now to swear allegiance to him, 
as our savior, as our king, before he comes back as our judge. And so every person in this life needs to come to that point where they admit to God that they are a sinner, that they could do nothing to save themselves and to ask Jesus to save them and then to begin to live for him. And for those of us who have done that, we remind each other that, that is where our true loyalty lies. That is where our ultimate allegiance lay and to live faithfully for him and to encourage others to bend the knee willingly until they're forced to do so forcefully. And finally, the theme of Daniel 2 is the theme of the book of Daniel, that this chapter, like all the chapters, is going to encourage God's people to remain faithful and hopeful in difficult times, for God is sovereign and he will set all things right. We're living in a difficult and a discouraging day, but God is sovereign. Be faithful, be encouraged, because he is sending his son to set all things right. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this beautiful text. And we thank you for revealing through your servant, Daniel, the future to come. And living this side of Daniel, we see how much of it has already come true. And it gives us hope and confidence in the things yet to be fulfilled. So would you give us faith and hope in our present day to be faithful, to stay true, and to encourage others to do the same? Would we live for you and for the kingdom to come and not for ourselves and the kingdoms that fade? Let us seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.